Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week our guest is Amy Myers Jaffe, managing director of the Climate Policy Lab and a research professor at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Amy is also the author of Energy's Digital Future, Harnessing Innovation for American Resilience and National Security. And she is a leading expert on global energy policy and sustainability. Amy previously served as the David M. Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations and Executive Director for Energy and Sustainability at the University of California, Davis, where she led research on low or zero carbon fuels and transportation policy. She is currently co-chair of the steering committee of the Women in Energy Initiative at Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy. Amy is widely published, including as co-author of Oil, Dollars, Debt, and Crises, The Global Curse of Black Gold with Dr. Mahmoud El-Gamal. My conversation with Amy Myers Jaffe about climate and energy trends in the Middle East begins now. Amy, welcome to On the Middle East. It's wonderful to have you join us today to talk about energy and climate trends in the region. Andrew, wonderful to be here. Let's start with Glasgow. When we were talking before the show, you observed that prior to Glasgow, Gulf states had been adversarial to climate initiatives. Now they're leaders. And in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have made carbon neutral or carbon zero commitments. Help us understand the context for these efforts. How serious do you see these initiatives by the Gulf what are both the opportunities and constraints for them to realize their objectives? That is a shift from their reliance on oil and gas. Well, you know, I think it's a very serious effort. And, um, you know, it, it does come across um, in the context of high oil prices, which may not have been 100% accidental. Of course, high oil prices makes it harder, uh, made it a little bit harder. Um, to argue for the Glasgow Accord. You had uh, nations worried about the costs of complying with climate change. But in the end, we had a good agreement uh, and a good meeting at Glasgow. And uh, the Saudis made a commitment to net zero by 2060. UAE uh, had announced its net zero target uh, for 2050. Um, UAE has invested about $40 billion in clean energy, including its nuclear plant, which it counts as clean energy. And they, they agreed to be the host of uh, one of the next uh, climate meetings uh, two years from now. So big commitment there. Saudi Arabia, big push uh, focused on you know, ammonia slash hydrogen exports. They've been the Saudis have invested a lot of time and effort in carbon capture and sequestration. They have greatly reduced the carbon intensity of their oil production. Um, and they have set an ambitious 50% renewables target for 2030. So we're talking about real change. I think that you have you know, some visionary leadership 
And um, and so it's, you know, this whole conflict between short term, long term. Amy, what are the constraints on, on the Gulf countries in pursuing these initiatives? Because their economies have been so dependent on oil exports. I mean, this is as radical a commitment as one can think about, given how these countries uh, economically have been organized. Well, you know, there's a thesis, which I, I find uh, somewhat correct, which is that we're not going to disappear oil use, um, you know, in the next 10 or 20 years, we're just going to really reduce it. Um, and so when you look at a Saudi Arabia or UAE or Kuwait, um, these are countries with a very low cost uh, production base. And, and at least in the case of Saudi Arabia, they've made a fantastic strides in making sure that their production, their own production, um, does not have excess methane leakage and, and other kinds of um, uh, environmental problems. And so I, I do think that the transition, you know, is going to allow for some extent of retaining um, market for oil on top of this pivot, which they are very well placed to do. I mean, we're talking about a region that has ample solar energy. We're talking about a region um, that is used to exporting um, ammonia, producing hydrogen. So they're really well positioned to both take a place in the new energy order and also to sort of straggle along and maintain their position in the old energy order, you know, for some period of time. Egypt is hosting COP27. That's the conference of parties to the UN climate change conference this year. And Cairo has the attention of US climate envoy John Kerry and others for the steps it is taking. Explain for us the COP27 initiatives and how Egypt and the region uh, fit into the international climate agenda. Well, you know, it's very important and interesting to have the next meeting in Egypt because, of course, that gives the opportunity to pull in Africa, to pull in the Middle East, and really get, you know, commitments front and center. Uh, Egypt is a member of something called the Adaptation Action Coalition. Um, that involves the UK and some other European countries, but also developing world countries. And the idea, I think, is to make sure there's a balance between uh, helping the global south with the immediate impacts of climate change and providing finance and blended finance um, to cope with climate change, in addition to sort of bringing along uh, countries to raise their ambition for what they can do in mitigation. And again, you know, Egypt has an ambitious um, renewable energy target. They're currently at 20% renewable energy. They are targeting to get to 42% by 2030. So, you know, there's just a lot of momentum and pressure. And indeed, you've got parties like Italy saying, hey, listen, we're going to be the transit hub um, for green green hydrogen and green electricity uh, into Europe. Um, and so, you, you, you know, you can kind of see the outlines of sort of a new geopolitics of clean energy uh, moving forward uh, while we're still in the thick of um, our old geopolitics of oil and gas. You've written a fair bit on the geopolitics of hydrogen. You mentioned that earlier. 
Tell us about this trend and what it means for the Middle East. Well, you know, it's hydrogen's anybody's game. A, a lot of countries are gearing up. It looks very similar to what we know in other energy spheres. You've got Japan doing hydrogen buyer diplomacy. Um, as I mentioned, you've got Italy talking about how it could be a transit, important transit hub. Um, and you've got Saudi Arabia, you know, sort of throwing down the gauntlet that it wants to be a major exporter. Um, but then you have a lot of other players. You've got Gazprom uh, prior to this hullabaloo about Nord Stream 2 and the border of Ukraine. Um, Gazprom was really moving forward on hydrogen and indeed had proposed that it would build um, hydrogen processing plants to be at the end of Nord Stream 2. So putting plants in Germany uh, to use uh, blue, blue gas. So we're going to take, the, you know, maybe add some CCS. Uh, Russia even has talked about being able to provide hydrogen to Europe from nuclear power. Um, but now, of course, that's called into question as Europe uh, steps back and says, is you know, Russia a reliable supplier? And then you have the sort of incoming of offshore wind in Denmark. You've got Shell talking about being a big player um, in uh, offshore wind to green hydrogen. You've got the US talking about its four hydrogen hubs, which could involve exports. You've got Australia talking about being a hydrogen export. So, um, so that really is going to raise this geopolitical question, which is as the cost of what we call electrolyzers, so the equipment it takes to take um, renewable energy and make hydrogen uh, by uh, splitting water. Um, the question is, will countries want to produce their own green hydrogen? Or will we start to see sort of a hydrogen trade you know, via ship? Um, will it look like LNG? Um, will countries do a mix of domestic versus imported? Uh, so a lot of questions remain, and it's anybody's guess who's going to win the space. But I think the Middle East countries have made it clear that they'd like to be a major player in this space. Amy, the Emir of Qatar was in Washington last week, and one of the agenda items for the Biden administration was whether Qatar could help mitigate a potential loss of Russian gas supplies in the, in the event of an escalation over Ukraine. Does Qatar have that capacity and what are the prospects for the LNG markets in the Middle East? Well, of course, Qatar's made it clear that it's, it doesn't have excess uh, capacity, but of course there's always the possibility, which we saw during the Fukushima accident, um, there's always the possibility that a producer can work with its customers or customers can come to a producer and do a temporary shift of cargoes, right? Redirect cargoes. So I'm sure the Biden administration, of course, would like Qatar to show flexibility if a Japan or a Brazil or, a, um, or South Korea or other countries are willing to defer or shift, redirect their LNG to Europe in the case of a further emergency. So I think we're not talking about shifting it right now. You've got a tremendous amount of US LNG you know, headed for Europe in January. Um, I think what's on the agenda is if, hopefully doesn't happen, Russia were to invade the Ukraine and there would be some kind of disruption. I think that the Biden administration is working with buyers and sellers 
uh, to see how much optimally could be redirected to Europe. And um, in the meantime, you know, it's kind of the cutter's advantage because there have the expansion coming of Northfield LNG. It's going to be up 40 percent uh, to 110 million tons a year. It's currently 77 million. Um, and that's going to start in, you know, 2025, 2026. So the question is, will Qatar be able to take this opportunity now and get people into long-term contracts for this increase that's coming in several years? And, you know, it's, it's, it's the big question, you know, would the Europeans say to themselves, listen, we've got to make plans. We have to diversify over time. Uh, we're going to take a, a, a term contract uh, with Qatar or not. And, and I think, you know, that that's kind of where we stand today. So there's both the question of how flexible can I be in terms of redirecting cargoes in an emergency? And then there's the next layer, which is as we move to the next generation of LNG, who's out there, um, uh, who's willing to sign long-term contracts? And will people pay a premium uh, to have a long-term contract? Because, you know, relying on the spot market looked a little unattractive in February. We haven't even gotten in, uh, we haven't gotten into uh, OPEC and the oil markets and prices. What do you see happening this year? Factoring in a possible Iran nuclear deal, which would mean a boost in Iranian exports adding to global supply and possible sanctions on Russia if the situation in Ukraine escalates and if that would have an impact on the global oil market. Well, you know, Andrew, as you're pointing out, there's just a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Um, and I like to contextualize it. I call this the COVID super cycle. So as you know, I've written a book uh, together with my colleague from Rice, Mahmoud Al-Gamal, and our big point is that there's this sort of cycle to oil and gas that is sort of a boom and bust that's tied to not only the secular um, global economic cycle, but to geopolitical cycles. And what I would say happened, and the way we have to think about this, we used to, in the old days, of course, the cycle was like decadal. And then suddenly we got to the point where every couple of years we were in a cycle because the shale can cycle you know, up and down so quickly. Um, but now, because of COVID, we saw like the cycle on steroids. So we had this complete and total collapse of demand and unprecedented level to unprecedented shrinkage uh, in 2020. And countries, you know, in the spring, we forget. I mean, countries ran out of storage tanks. They had to literally turn off production because there was no place to put the oil. Countries stopped drilling, companies stopped drilling. So now turn around and uh, we get the V-shaped recovery it was not quite as much as a V as we'd hope, but, you know, United States was roaring at, you know, 6% growth in a GDP. You know, we haven't seen that in a long time. So all of that, and, you know, you had some extra oil use in the vehicle sector in certain cities, people using a vehicle instead of taking mass transit. But the bottom line is oil demand gained suddenly in 2021 um, and brought prices with it uh, toward the end of the year. Um, and, and, you know, there's like this momentum. And of course, the market started to focus on whether OPEC had enough spare capacity and the market started to get very overheated. But, you know, the story could end the way it always ends when OPEC overheats the market. 
And that is we have a high risk between inflation and, and debt burdens of the uh, low-income countries. You've got you know, some kind of economic problems in China related to supply chains and electricity disruptions. So we could see um, this robust global growth that people are predicting to be 4% uh, this coming this year, 2022, we could see that uh, dematerialize, you know, partly because of the high oil prices, um, but that we're going to see rising production. You've got uh, in the U.S., they're drilling the shale again. We're going to be able to see that volume in the second half of the year. You've got rising for production from Canada, Guyana, um, Brazil. And, you know, Citibank estimates if you add it all up, I mean, they have some giant number like 7 million barrels a day, which seems impossible to me that uh, it could be that high, but that's where their numbers fall. Um, and whatever the case, we know there's production coming on from non-OPEC. And so it's really about what happens between now and when this, that oil starts to trickle into the market. Right? Do we see a uh, geopolitical events? Um, do we see switches in sanctions policy in, in either direction? Um, and you know, I think it's you know, even for an experienced old pro like yourself and myself, uh, it's pretty hard to call because there's so many variables at play. Um, but if we had stable geopolitics, which is a very big if in today's world you could see the oil price come back down as this new production um, from non-OPEC you know, makes itself felt uh, as we get to the spring. And what about the impact of the possible Iranian oil coming back on the market in the event of an Iran nuclear deal? Well, you know, uh, we've had many times that the market has moved on the basis of predicting a uh, Iranian nuclear deal. Um, and there was like a little, a little uptick in optimism, uh, I guess what it was two, three days ago. Uh, Russia certainly putting out the story that it is brokering a major international agreement to showing how its global leadership, but uh, given how many troops it has on the border of the Ukraine, it seems a little inconsistent. Anyway, point is, it again, depends on the circumstances um, in the Ukraine and elsewhere. So if we have a return to stability via diplomacy, and that were to be able to build towards um, a deal with Iran, uh, then I think we could see you know, some cooling off of the oil market. But I think you know, part of the challenge I see is that the politics of an Iran deal with the United States are always dicey on either side, either in Tehran or in Washington. Uh, we're coming to the midterm elections this fall. Um, and so it's not like making a deal with Iran is a popular uh, issue uh, for Americans. Uh, it's sort of off the radar screen. And, um, and, and what happens between the United States and NATO and Europe and, and Russia uh, is high priority front and center. Uh, is taking up a lot of attention. Um, and so I think it's very hard to foresee, you know, how all those pieces are going to fall into place. You're going to have a solid um, negotiation in Europe 
you're going to have uh, Russia playing a constructive role internationally, both um, in um, resolving um, its troop movements around the Ukraine and uh, brokering, uh, being an honest broker uh, in, in the United States negotiation with Europe and Iran um, and the parties. It's, there's a lot to fall into place uh, to make that happen. And I do not believe that that risk of Iranian oil coming back to market is in the price of oil today. Uh, if we start to see things move in the right direction, uh, then I think you would see uh, the markets would cool off. What role does China play in global energy markets and how does it impact the Middle East? Well, listen, there's no question that uh, when the Chinese had their disruption um, to uh, domestic electricity, they ran out to buy some LNG and that is what got uh, the natural gas prices, you know, moving everywhere uh, because they're a, you know, such a big buyer. And, and you know, there's just this sense that, you know, uh, uh, that China sneezing in the oil market or in the gas market, it's just reverberates. But, you know, Beijing always has it on their mind how to be more self-sufficient. It doesn't like being dependent on um, seaborne movements, whether that's oil or gas. Um, it's made no real moves, truly, to speak of in, in a substantial way to um, be you know, active, active in providing and defending the security of Middle East countries. Um, honestly, it hasn't even really been that proactive leading in diplomacy um, involving the Middle East. I mean, it plays, uh, uh, sometimes it plays a constructive role, but ultimately it's not been replacing the United States in diplomacy. It's not been um, effecting uh, strong diplomacy. Uh, in the Middle East. So when we talk about, you know, development finance, China's played a big role, especially in Africa. We talk about trade, China's very important. Um, but you don't really see anybody stepping up and talking about how China is going to be the guarantor of national and sovereign borders. Um, you don't see uh, discussion of China uh, being the lead in um, making sure that the sea lanes are free for international trade. Um, and so I think at this point, when we talk about China, their global role is as an economy and in some regional matters where they've really asserted themselves, um, obviously, strongly positioned in new energy, strongly positioned um, in nuclear plant sales, though not so much uh, as the Russians. Um, but in the big mix picture, in the picture of the whole uh, global picture, um, China has not really taken this very global mantle when it comes to um, security. And I think that that is a big difference uh, despite how important and futuristic it is for countries to look at China as a market, um, you know, 
A lot of people say that, you know, oil and gas demand in China is itself going to peak um, because uh, they're making such a big push to clean tech and they've made these commitments. So uh, I think the jury is uh, still out whether or not they're sort of very impactful footprint in the spot market um, and in pricing uh, will continue or ease over time. Amy, last question. How do you see the trend in nuclear energy, both globally and in the Middle East? Well, I think nuclear is playing an important role in the Middle East. Um, China has certainly uh, made a bet on nuclear power for inside China. And, you know, even the United States, which really had looked like it was moving away from nuclear, you know, you're seeing some more seriousness. We're actually seeing startups uh, in the United States for small advanced reactors. Um, so I, I, I know it's a controversial, you know, should we, shouldn't we classify nuclear as clean energy? But I do believe, especially in the developing world, that um, you have a lot of leaders that look favorably on nuclear. Um, and so I, I do think it's going to be part of the mix going forward. Amy, this has been great. I always learned so much from you. I've been a huge fan and consumer of your work. Thank you for joining us today on, on the Middle East. Thanks for having me. We will return after this short break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sit through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit Almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guest, Amy Myers-Jaffe, and our production team of Beowulf Rockland and Rosabelle Hine of Two Squared Media Productions. We will be back next week. And if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. His guest this month is His Royal Highness Prince Turkey Al-Faisal al-Saud, who discusses his new book, The Afghanistan File. And next week, Gilles will be interviewing Nobel Prize winner Maria Reza. On Israel with Ben Caspit and Ben's guest this week is former Israeli minister Ephraim Snath. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where my guest next week will be Dr. Volker Pertis, the special representative of the UN Secretary General for Sudan. Thank you all for listening and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at lmonitor.com. <laughs>